So for this Easter season, I'm going to teach on the topic of the resurrected king. That's going to be our, our teaching series. We're going to begin today looking at Palm Sunday. And, and in the midst of Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about Jesus as a misunderstood king. That a misunderstood king. And then next Sunday for Easter, we're going to present the resurrected king. And then the following Sunday, April 8th, we're going to look at our soon and coming king. So these next three weeks, it's going to be all about our king, Jesus, the misunderstood king, the resurrected king, and the soon and coming king. So we're going to talk about Palm Sunday today. And Palm Sunday is actually one of the only stories of the life of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels. Uh, and so that just highlights the importance of this day. Now, John of the four gospel writers, John was the only one who actually mentioned palm branches. So this whole idea that it's Palm Sunday comes from the fact that they were waving palm branches. But John is actually the only one who mentions that. And in fact, this time of year, they say that, that palm branches didn't grow near Jerusalem. So it had to have been pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for the feasts that brought palm branches with them to wave those palm branches. In Matthew, it says that they cut branches off of trees right there on the spot. Like it was spontaneous. They were cutting branches down. Those probably weren't palm branches because there weren't palm branches right there next to Jerusalem. Mark and Luke don't mention any trees or branches at all in their stories. So we, we've got four different uh, tellings of Palm Sunday. We're going to focus in on Luke's telling. We're going to draw a little bit from the other three writers, but we're going to focus in on Luke's telling of Palm Sunday. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to go to Luke chapter 19. Palm Sunday also appears in Matthew chapter 21, in Mark chapter 11, and in John chapter 12. And so uh, you can go and study those as well, but we're going to land on Luke chapter 19. And let's read this story together, and then as always, we'll go back through and break it down and look at what uh, God is teaching us today. Starting in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19 and reading to verse 44. After he, the he being Jesus, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you there. As you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, even the stones will cry out. 
When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This particular process that Jesus was going through by riding a donkey into the city and they were laying their coats down and they were waving the branches and they were singing praises to God. We call this the triumphal entry. But even that name, honestly, has some sarcasm to it. Because what Jesus was doing looked nothing like what a true triumphal entry looked like. And so what I want to look at here, first off, is the humility of Jesus. That Jesus was coming as a humble king, which was completely different than the culture that he was in. Nowadays, when we talk about leadership training and educating people on leadership, humility is a huge part of it. This whole concept of a servant leader and a humble leader. It's a normal part of our culture today, but it was not a part of the culture of Jesus' day. This was a revolutionary new idea that Jesus was bringing to the people. In this day and age, it was not about humility. It was about tooting your own horn. It was about proclaiming your great deeds. And, and whatever walk of life that you were in, you did everything you could to proclaim all the great things you had done. And so if you were in the army, you would proclaim all the battles you had won, all the people that you had killed, all the cities that you had overthrown, right? If you worked in medicine, you would speak of all the people that you had healed, all of the new remedies that you had discovered or invented, the new procedures you had come up in. If you were a, a, a teacher, you would declare your great intelligence and all the books you had read and all the students that you had taught. Part of the culture of this day and age was this, this culture of honor where you just let everybody know all the great things you had done. You were constantly building yourself up publicly. But then Jesus came and presented this concept of humble leadership and of servant leadership. He says, you, when you do a good deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He says, don't shout it out when you're doing good things. He says, if you're going to be a, a leader, don't lord it over the people. Just serve the people. Don't claim your authority and your position. Just be a servant. All of this, these were groundbreaking teachings. These were not the norm of the day. And so what was a triumphal entry? Well, I want to pull this up. I read a lot of different blogs and websites and, and, and studying this concept. And this was the best one in terms of just giving us a picture of what a true triumphal entry is. This was part of Roman culture, and in the day and age of Jesus, they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. That in the Roman culture, when you went off and you won a battle, you conquered a city, or you set captives free, or whatever you did, when that commanding officer came back, when he was entering Rome, he would enter triumphantly. And they would call it the triumphal entry. And there was a whole procedure to it, but it was a big deal. It was such a big deal that even as the years went on, it got to the point where the Roman emperors wouldn't even let the officers do it. They reserved it just for themselves. 
And so for the latter part of the Roman Empire, the only people that could do the triumphal entries were the emperors themselves. But prior to that, in the first part of the empire, it was the commanding officers that would come back and take part. So I just want to read this to you, and let us just get a picture of what a true triumphal entry looked like. The triumph ceremonies varied each time, but many common elements are evident. They generally took up a whole day and started with a speech before breakfast. The victorious commander would speak before the Senate, the magistrates, his army, and the public. The crowd would first salute him, and then after appropriate prayers had been offered to their gods, he would praise his legions and he would mention specific individuals for their contributions, give out decorations for valor, and distribute money to his soldiers. After breakfast, the commander put on a special purple-colored robe and offered sacrifices to their gods. He was now ready for his big moment. The procession entered the city at a specific point, the Porta Triumphalis, a gate used only for the purpose of triumphal entries and then went through the streets and squares of Rome along a route chosen by the commander. The consuls and politicians would be the lead of the parade, followed by a number of impressive-looking captives from the battlefield. So they would dress up their captives and have the captives be a part of the parade. And then the best part is, is if they captured a royal during battle. So if it was a king or a prince or somebody from the royal family... They would actually dress this royal up and make them be a part of the parade, the captured king that they had brought with them, and that was part of the parade. Then certain episodes of the battle would be represented either via paintings or live reenactments. So as the parade is marching through the streets, they're reenacting the victorious battle that is going on. If the occasion was marking a naval triumph, there might be a nautical theme in the parade, such as ships' beaks and captured equipment from boats. Then there were musicians, there were torchbearers, and there were flag wavers to add to the pageantry, as well as examples of the exotic flowers and the animals from the conquered region. So now you got people waving flags, you've got dancers, you've got singers, you've got musicians. People are carrying flowers and leading unique animals through the streets that they had brought back from, from this particular area. Next came the carts full of the spoils of war. So they would have carts filled with silver and gold and, 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 and chalices and jewelry and all the stuff they had captured during battle. After that came the attendants who were carrying the laurel leaves. And in the Roman Empire, the laurel leaves represented great honor. And, and, and so almost like the lei here in Hawaiian culture, they would have the attendants carrying all of the laurel leaves of the commander himself. And then finally, the star of the show, the godlike victor, would ride on a spectacular tall-sided chariot pulled by four horses. He wore a laurel crown and carried a laurel branch in his right hand. In his left hand, he carried an ivory scepter with an eagle at the top of it, symbolic of the triumph. He was also accompanied by a slave. Listen to this. The slave's job, standing on the chariot next to the victorious commander, the slave's job was to constantly whisper in his ear and remind him that he wasn't actually a god in case he became too full of himself during the parade. 
So he's standing there holding a staff with an eagle on top of it, on top of this ridiculously huge chariot, being pulled by four horses, and he has a slave whispering in his ear, you're not a god. You're not a god. Okay. (laughs) After the chariot then would come all the commander's children, followed by his officers on horseback, and finally came his army of troops marching along. This was the parade. This was the triumphal entry, and they would go through the city singing and and dancing and shouting, and the streets everywhere through Rome would be lined with people celebrating and cheering and, and, and all of this, and eventually they would end up at the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus, which sounds like a transformer to me, but that's okay. Um... And they would stop there and they would give more speeches and offer more sacrifices at their temple in the middle of Rome. That was a triumphal entry. That was what the culture did. Compare that to what Jesus did. He was riding on a baby donkey. Had a couple of coats thrown over it to make it look nice. And he had a a small gathering of his followers singing and shouting for him as he rode a donkey in. But the interesting thing is, the moment he got inside the city gates riding his donkey, it was like the crowds dispersed like nothing had happened. It was like nobody noticed. Immediately the story moves on to something else that was happening. So we compare a true Roman triumphal entry to what Jesus did. That's why I say it's almost sarcastic that we call it a triumphal entry. But what Jesus was doing was introducing himself as a humble king, a different kind of king, one that maybe they wouldn't understand at first, but they would get it later. So as Jesus prepares for his triumphal entry, first off, it's obvious that Jesus has been studying Zechariah. All right, listen to these verses from Zechariah 14.4. It says, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. So Jesus is starting his triumphal entry from the Mount of Olives, fulfilling the word in Zechariah. And then listen to Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When Jesus asked his disciples to go into the village and get the baby donkey, he knew that he was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah that the Savior would ride in on a baby donkey. So Jesus is standing on the top of the Mount of Olives and he says to his disciples, go into the village and find this baby donkey. The village, whether it was Bethpage or Bethany, was approximately two miles from Jerusalem. So, so Jesus' little parade went about two miles down the hill and into Jerusalem. And he says, go in there and you'll find a baby donkey tied up on which no one has ever sat. Now, how did Jesus know they would find a baby donkey tied up in there? Well, number one, because baby donkeys were in every village, and so he was just guessing they would find one. Number two, maybe he just had supernatural knowledge of it and just knew it would happen. Or number three, maybe he prearranged it. Maybe he set it up and he had already talked to the owners of the donkey. 
He was already spending time in these villages of Bethpage and Bethany. This is where he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, were good friends of his. He spent a lot of time with them. So he was normally in these villages. He spent a lot of time in these villages. So it's not uh, ridiculous to think that maybe he knew the owners of the donkey and he just set it up in advance. And so when the disciples go into town and they untie the donkey and the owners are like, hey, what are you doing? They said, it's okay. Jesus needs it. And they're like, oh, yeah. He already told us. Okay. We don't know. It could be any one of those three things. The important thing is that Jesus knew that he was fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. And by knowing that he was fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah, Jesus was finally ready to declare to the world that he was the Messiah, that he was the coming Savior. Up until this point, he had tried to keep it on the down low. Whenever people tried to glorify him, he would tell them to be quiet. Even the demons would shout out, we know who you are, you're the Son of God, and he would tell them, shut up. It's not my time yet. He would heal somebody, and what would he tell them? Don't tell anybody that it was me that healed you, because it's not my time yet. Over and over again, he told people, don't lift me up, don't glorify me, don't tell people about me. It's not my time yet. My time has not yet come. And yet now here on Palm Sunday, on this day, Jesus is now ready to declare who he is. He's no longer keeping it in a secret. He's no longer keeping it on the down low. So by fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, he is proclaiming, I am the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. The second thing we see is this. He says that it's a colt of a donkey. And you'll notice here in Luke, it never says donkey. So it's like, Pastor, why do you keep saying donkey? Because in Mark and Matthew, it says that it was a, a donkey. In fact, in Mark and Matthew, it says that they actually took the mom and the baby and brought them both. Luke only mentions the baby donkey here. He says, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. A donkey, a baby donkey that nobody has ever ridden. Why is that important? Because if nobody's ever ridden it, then it was still set aside for sacred use. Then it was still qualified to be used for a divine ritual. And so this was the second way that Jesus was now declaring that he was God and that he was the coming Savior is because he would only ride on a donkey that nobody else had ever sat on. This donkey was being used for a divine purpose. And then finally, as his disciples are shouting and singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they're declaring him king. And the Pharisees say, this is not appropriate, Jesus. This is blasphemy. Tell your disciples to be silent. And Jesus says, no, if I tell them to be silent, the rocks will start shouting it out. You know, part of me actually wishes they would have stopped singing because that would have been pretty cool if the rocks had started singing instead. Jesus says, you know what? I've been telling my disciples to be quiet for years now. No more. I'm not telling them to be quiet anymore. Now it's my time. Now they can lift up my praise. I am coming in now. Jesus is declaring, now I am the coming Messiah. But I told you that the theme of this was that Jesus was a misunderstood king. So let's talk about what this means. It says that as Jesus was riding the baby donkey down the hill into Jerusalem, 
that as his disciples were singing, that they were throwing their coats on the ground in front of the donkey. What does that mean? What is that all about? Well, in order to understand this, we need to go actually way back into the Old Testament. We're going to read a story from 2 Kings chapter 9 in the Old Testament. At this time in the history of Israel, a man named Joram, Joram, was the king of Israel. Joram was the son of Ahab. Now Ahab and Jezreel, Jezebel, as the king and queen of Israel, they were, they basically personified everything you would expect to see in a villain, right? I mean, they were just the perfect personification of bad guys, of, of what it was like to be evil and to be selfish and to be horrible leaders and to lead a nation away from God and, and to serve themselves and they murdered anybody that wasn't with them. They were just terrible king and queen. And so Ahab's son was now the king, but God was not okay with the family line of Ahab continuing to be in control. So God spoke to Elisha the prophet and told him, I want you to declare Jehu to be the new king. We're taking the kingdom away from Ahab and his family line. I want you to declare Jehu. So starting in 2 Kings chapter 9 and starting in verse 1, it says this. Now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins. Gird up your loins. That means man up. You're about to do something freaky right now, okay? So he's like, get yourself ready. Uh, you might die doing this, so toughen up, get ready to go. Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him to arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And this is my favorite part. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. Okay? He's like, I want you to go into this room. I want you to pull Jehu to the side, pour oil over his head, declare him king, and then run for your life. That's what I want you to do. Why? Because in a monarchy like this, to declare somebody else the king was treason, right? It was traitorous, and it was punishable by death. I find it funny that Elisha didn't go himself. <laughs> he found one of the young men. He was like, you know what? You're faster than me, all right? You're going to be able to run better than I am. So this young prophet does exactly what Elisha told him to do. It says... Uh, Oh, I lost my place. So the servant, so the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting, and he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, O captain. He arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. You shall strike the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free in Israel. 
I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. And then what did he do? Then he opened the door and fled. Can you imagine being one of the other captains just sitting there? Like this young prophet walks up, pulls Jehu off to the side, pours oil over his head, says something, and then just takes off sprinting. So the other captains said to him, when Jehu walks out, now he's covered in oil, young prophet just took off sprinting, and the other captain said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And Jehu said to them, you know very well the man in his talk, all right? He's like, you know exactly what just happened. I'm covered in oil, all right? He ran for his life. You know exactly what just happened. And they said, it's a lie. Tell us now, right? That was the old way of saying, you're kidding. You're joking. Come on, tell us the truth. And Jehu said, thus and thus he said to me, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And then here's the whole point of this story, verse 13. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under Jehu on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. You see, for them, the act of taking off their robe and throwing it on the ground so that Jehu could stand on it was their symbolic act of declaring, we agree with the word of the Lord, Jehu is king. Every single person who was doing that was putting their life on the line. Because if Jehu did not end up being king, then the current king, Joram, would not only kill Jehu, but the current king would kill everybody else who also attached themselves to Jehu. So the very act of taking off their coat and laying it on the ground, they were laying their lives on the line. They were saying, you know what? We're hitching our wagon to Jehu. We believe the word of the Lord. We believe that Jehu is the next king, and we are standing with him whether it works out or not. And so we fast forward back to the time of Jesus and back to that first Palm Sunday. And what do we have as Jesus is riding this baby donkey down the hill? It says the people were spreading their coats on the road. They were reenacting this same scene from 2 Kings chapter 9 by taking off their coats and laying them down so that Jesus could walk on them. They were declaring, we are hitching our wagon to Jesus. We're declaring Jesus as king. We are ready to follow Jesus. We believe the word of the Lord. This is the king coming into Jerusalem. Now, why do we say that he was a misunderstood king? Because most of those people that were laying their coats on the ground were expecting Jesus to walk into Jerusalem, declare a revolution against Rome, and that he was going to set Israel free from Roman oppression and set up a new kingdom, a new Jewish kingdom there in Israel, and Jesus was going to establish himself as a physical earthly king. That's what they were attaching to him for. They wanted Rome thrown off. They wanted to be free again to worship God the way they wanted to. So they said, we're hitching our wagon to Jesus. That's why we're singing. That's why we're celebrating. So you can imagine how they felt four days later when Jesus was arrested, taken into captivity, and then the very next day was executed on a cross. And why most of them fled and took off. 
because they realized or they thought we attached ourselves to the wrong king. And he didn't establish himself as the king, and so they executed him. They're probably going to execute us too. And so they ran for their lives. He was a misunderstood king. They had an idea of a kingdom being established right then and there, a physical earthly kingdom. Jesus had a different plan in mind. He was establishing the kingdom of God. But to establish the kingdom of God, he had to take a different path. For him, the path to victory wasn't in fighting a war. For him, the path to victory was being executed on a cross. And he knew that he would have to do that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back today. In verse 41 here of Luke 19, it says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. And then he declares a siege coming against Jerusalem, the temple being torn down, not a single stone being left up. This was approximately 30 A.D. when Jesus said these words, and it was about 70 A.D. when those exact things actually happened. A siege was set up, and the entire temple of Jerusalem was torn down, not a stone left standing. And Jesus said this, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. I want to present to you today not only a humble king, not only a misunderstood king, but a compassionate king. As he rode into Jerusalem, he wept. He was crying because he knew that most every person in that city was going to reject him. It was their moment of visitation, and they were going to miss it. And that broke his heart because he came for everybody. He came as a king to lead us to a new kind of victory a victory where we overcome sin, a victory where we're no longer tied to the sins of our past, a victory where we no longer have to live according to the flesh, but that we would have a new spirit rise in us and we would become new people. And he wanted that so badly for each one of us. But as he rode into the city and people are singing and shouting and praising his name and it's supposed to be a triumphal entry, but for Jesus it was an entry of weeping. He knew the price he was about to pay, but he also knew how so many people would reject it and miss out on it and not receive the gift that he was bringing to them. Will you stand with me today? The Bible says that when Jesus was executed on that cross, that when his blood was shed and he died, he was paying the punishment for every one of our sins. He was paying the price so that we wouldn't have to because it's a price he didn't want us to have to pay because that price would be for us to die and spend eternity apart from God. That's the only way that we could pay the price for our sins. And he didn't want that. He wanted to be in relationship with us, both in this life now and in the eternity to come. So he paid the price instead. He died for us. And the Bible says that if we would believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he truly was the king of all kings, and if we believe that he died for us and rose from the dead, and if we would make a decision to make Jesus the leader of our lives, 
that we would receive the forgiveness of our every sin. He would come in and give us a new spirit, make us brand new people. We would no longer be tied to our past. We would be free to live a future that God has ordained for us. A future where we can walk in the ways that God has called us to walk. And a future that would lead us to spending an eternity with God. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, you've never made that decision to follow Him, I want to give you an opportunity to do just that. All you have to do is publicly signify that you're making that decision. We're not going to bring you up front. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to make a show out of you. We just want to pray for you. But it's important that you're willing to publicly signify, I am making a decision that Jesus is going to be the leader of my life. Jesus is going to be my king. Just like those people who were throwing their coats on the ground, this is your moment to throw your coat on the ground and say, I'm hitching my wagon to Jesus. I want the new life that he promises. And if that's you right now, you would just publicly raise your hand right now and say, that's me. That's me. Praise God. I see you, man. That's awesome. David, I see you. Thank you, Jesus. I see those hands. Any others today? You say, that's me. That's me. I'm hitching my wagon to Jesus. I want to follow him. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray right now for every person that raised their hand, for every person right now that publicly declared that they want to follow you. God, I pray that you would do all that you promised you would do. You would right now come into their hearts. You would begin to make things new. Oh, Father, that you would begin to touch them. Lord, that every shame, Lord, every dark hidden thing, everything they have carried with them right now, you'd be plucking it out one at a time. And that weight, that heaviness that had burdened them for years and years would just begin to become lighter right now. There would just be a freedom. I'm no longer afraid. I'm no longer ashamed. I no longer have to hide. Thank you right now that newness of life is happening. I pray that you would speak to each one of them right now, God. Speak to them of a new destiny you have for them, a new life that you have set before them, great things for them to do for your kingdom. God, I pray that you begin to draw near to them and reveal yourself as their loving Father. Not a distant God, but a loving Father who is willing to pay the ultimate price that they might know you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Can we celebrate right now all those that made a decision to follow Jesus? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Well, right now, just as they did on, the, on Palm Sunday, let's praise our King. Let's celebrate our King. He's not misunderstood anymore. We get it now. He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom in Israel. He came to set up the kingdom of God. That all that would know him would be delivered out of the kingdom of darkness. And that we would live in the kingdom of lights. We celebrate that work today. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah.